Welcome to Rose's All Trash. It's a podcast accompanying uh, Read Community, which is an international reading community based around justice texts um, with members in 13 different countries. We release a new calendar every month. I'm Catherine. And I'm Ryan. What we're going to discuss is uh, Joan Didion slouching towards Bethlehem, which is one of her, if not the most famous essay she's ever written. It's written in 1967. And it's about her time in San Francisco with sort of the hippies and the movement happening there around like subcultures and drugs and the use of substance and the people she met there. Next, we have um, an essay by Louis Menand. This is called The Radicalization of Joan Didion. It's an analysis of Didion as a writer and how her writings about place like California intersected with the development of California in terms of big business, aeronautics, pharmaceuticals. And this essay actually goes in depth about her political character, um, including the fact that she and her family were lifelong Republicans during the period surrounding the Cold War. And actually, as she wrote Slouching Toward Bethlehem, our first reading, this hippie life intrigued her intellectually, but it also repulsed her. And Menand asserts that after writing Slouching Toward Bethlehem, quote, completely reassessed not only her practice as a journalist, but her understanding of American life, her politics, and even the basis of her moral judgment. So the radicalization of Joan Didion. And by the end of his essay, he doesn't really confirm that Didion succeeded or failed at really being able to tell compassionate stories, but he does write, quote, Didion is the quintessential magazine writer, end quote. And our next reading is from Saul Sanchez, an essay, or it's a chapter from a book. The chapter is called The Migrant Experience from Birth to Age Five. So Sanchez was born into a migrant worker family, but how he describes it, it's really more of a migrant worker community. He has a lot of extended family, a lot of aunts and uncles and kids that traveled along with those um, adults. They actually traveled throughout Central and Western America, so Montana, Michigan, Texas, and California. So Sanchez describes his early childhood and different stories, different memories that are really, that really come through, especially this strange quote-unquote elation that fills him when he remembers California specifically. So for example, when he thinks of Watsonville, he thinks of digging up carrots. Uh, and when he thinks of Gilroy, he thinks of plums. Another reading that we have is uh, by Jean Jordan. It's an excerpt from Where I Live Now, which was written in 1995. And it's quite short, but it's about different places she's been and her sense of community and of moral value in the face of a Republican landslide win politically and also thinking about the earthquake that happened in Japan near Osaka and her time as a resident scholar in the Midwest. And finally, the conclusion to a book by Alex Shafran. It's called The Road to Resegregation. So this is a book of studies on how the San Francisco Bay approached its two biggest post-war issues, racial segregation and environmental destruction. They approached it basically by making excuses and making money. So Shafran discusses the existing political activist government strategies and how they conflict with one another. And then Shafran proposes eight principles for building toward a common purpose. So Shafran asserts that the most daunting issues are really the ones that need to be solved ASAP. Quote, these dilemmas are not inherent, even if they seem inborn. They were created and perpetuated in part by a collective political imagination that is similarly limited. For Californians of my generation, we have never known anything different.
end quote. Along with our January 2021 calendar theme, which is roughly about like place and location and how they tie into our identity and our sense of purpose, this particular episode focuses a lot on California and the imagination surrounding it, casting it as a utopia. Since we are talking about California and it's cast as a progressive utopia. I wanted to talk about whether that exists for us personally, whether we grew growing up in California, literally only California. I was born in Korea, but I have never moved from, from California to somewhere else other than for college. Growing up here, completely insulated here, do you think you have a utopian idea of California? No, not at all. I mean, my situation growing up in California is I live in a house in Palo Alto. It's a little Eichler, uh, which if you are from California, you've probably heard of him. He was the architect who did a lot of houses throughout California. So this is an old mid-century modern house. My family has lived in it uh, for like two or three generations, depending on how you count it. My grandparents bought it uh, when my grandmother passed away very suddenly young. It was uh, like sort of passed on to my mother and my dad right around the time they got married. And so this is the house my mom grew up in. I've lived here my whole life. I moved out for a couple of months for a model that we did. Um, but like, I've been in California and in the same spot exactly my whole life. And no, I do not see the utopia. I see a lot of, well, I see a lot of beauty and a lot of good intentions. I see people who, despite their good intentions, are often a little bit out of touch or very much out of touch with reality. The fact that you lived in one house your whole life is also a really interesting narrative setting. It's something that I didn't realize defined my identity very strongly until I left it to go to college and to go to Baltimore. And like, I'm pretty sure like as soon as I set foot on the East Coast for the first time, like the first words out of my mouth was like, I'm, I'm a Californian, like I am not from here. Like as soon as I left, I realized how important this sense of place was. So I'm glad you just went there. We both have big stories about how the housing market affected our lives, basically. It just feels like the housing market is one phrase. You know how, so when people break into cars, the car windows in general are made out of this like special glass or something, where if you just have like a pendulum and something swinging from the pendulum and it'll completely shatter. And like, that's what I feel like when I open this mental box in my head called the housing recession. <laughs> like everything is linked back to it. Even things that happened before it link forward to it. The housing market is something that I had never given any thought to. I mean, I was incredibly blessed during the 2008 recession is that neither my parents lost their jobs. In fact, my mom transitioned into a different job at that time and I was unaware of it going on at all. It's something I only heard about in retrospect. It was not an aspect of my life, but when COVID hit and the economy tanked, my father, who at the time was working for a company that remodeled office spaces, he got let go because of COVID-19 shutdowns. That was the first time that I was faced with the reality like we might have to sell our house and I wouldn't have this anymore. And that like shattered something very fundamental in me that I had always had this to rely on that like it's kind of hard to describe because it's something I had never thought about it was just always a given that we would always have this house I mean again I'm very fortunate my father found a job we were able to keep our house I'm incredibly grateful for that but this house is more than just like location it's something where like my family who loves to host has had 
traditions. We've had parties like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, gingerbread house making, Thanksgiving, Halloween. We have holiday parties that we've hosted for over 20 years for some of them with the same set of friends. I mean, with COVID, we made a lot of jokes about how they're going to have to learn how to make Thanksgiving dinner themselves for the first time in like several decades. So this, the pace of my years has been set by this house and the gatherings that we've had here. And that doesn't feel like you see California as a utopia? No, not at all. When I think about like the past, sometimes it's easy to put rose-tinted glasses on it. And there are like, there are attempts at utopia here. Like when I think of the park that's near my house and the library, and there are these very like 50s, 60s style structures, like play structures for children. There's like this amorphous wooden carved thing. And there are these like concrete tunnels and the way it's set up or my elementary school, a public school, but it's alternative uh, in a variety of ways. I had a farm, I had some sheep, some goats, some chickens that the kids would take care of. I went there, my siblings went there, my mom went there. She and I had the same teacher for fourth and fifth grade. So a lot of continuity. And these things are all like attempts at utopia. It's like the beginning idea and pushing the edge further, I feel like, but it's not successful. That's an interesting view of utopia, I guess, because it's very familial as opposed to about like progress and technology the way that most utopias have been cast i mean we do have that idea of technology as utopia in california specifically in the bay area because we're both coming from the bay area perspective like you know we live a neighborhood away from the jobs house facebook and google and all that yeah i mean one thing you didn't mention is the park you're talking about also has like the most ability inclusive park in the world Oh, yeah, that's true. The Magical Bridge Playground. Yeah, it's like literally supposed to be the most fit for people of any ability or disability. Also, because we are both from the same town, Palo Alto, and there's a specific sort of local politics here is that we had had Foothills Park, which is a park up in the hills above Palo Alto, which has a lake. It's got hiking trails. It's a large park. And the city of Palo Alto exclusively funded it when the land was up for sale and Palo Alto suggested, oh, we should make this into a park. They asked other cities if they'd like to split the cost because it's a big park and none of the other cities wanted to allocate any money for it. So Palo Alto funded this park entirely on its own and thus it was only open to Palo Alto residents. You had to have proof of residency in Palo Alto to enter until very recently where it's now open to anyone. It's almost like a little metaphor for I think the larger state of California is the idea of the like nature reserve and the park and the place to learn about the wildlife there and all those cool things like that's a great idea and really community minded but then it's only for people from Palo Alto. The schools are that way too. I always knew while attending a Palo Alto middle and high school that if you didn't have proof of residency and you weren't in the East Palo Alto program whatever that was there's no way you can go to one of like the most highly ranked schools in California, even if you live within driving range of it. That's something that like I really didn't grasp uh, what our school system was like uh, until I left it. Obviously, like my parents always told me that people would move to Palo Alto just so their kids would be able to attend our our public high schools. And I was like, okay, I guess like I knew people do that, but like the magnitude of what Palo Alto is and what its public schools are just did not dawn on me until I met people like in Baltimore who had been from all around the U.S. and their experiences are vastly different. Well you know that's actually my story because I was born in Korea and when I was around two I flew and moved with my mom here 
uh, my dad had already been working in the U.S. for a year, and it turned out that he probably wasn't going to be flying back anytime soon. So my parents made the executive decision to move our family here temporarily. And then so we moved into the downstairs of uh, like a two-story house. I have some really interesting memories from there. All pretty good. I mean, I was like, that was before my sister was born. So it was just me being like an extreme, like a very good child. I Like I didn't really throw any tantrums. I was like super afraid of my parents and like really like loved them a lot. So I was like a good kid who like listened and did everything right. I like got good grades and stuff. And then around the time that my sister was born, we moved into an apartment. And I also have pretty good memories from that apartment. It was in an area of San Francisco around Lake Merced. That's right next to the state university the san francisco state university i don't really know anything about like what that neighborhood is like but it was you know safe it was green it wasn't too far from where i eventually would go to private school Um, and this private school it had two campuses the younger campus so grades k through three were in an area where a lot of um chinese immigrant families live so i actually went to a Christian private school where like I would say 90% of the kids were Chinese and because of that I didn't have to deal with being like in a predominantly white space which is really interesting but also I definitely knew the dynamics of a majority group and a minority group. I feel honestly like really blessed to have randomly gone through that experience because I could be aware of something is something is different. Like all my teachers are white, but all the kids are Chinese and I'm not Chinese. And, you know, and I, re- I could realize like when there was like one white kid in our class or something, everyone would have a crush on them regardless of the gender. And I was like, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like I wasn't like super ostracized the way that like a lot of Asian kids or black kids or any ethnic minority would have been in a predominantly white space. And then we moved out of the apartment into a house. And this house was in a really nice area, or at least bordering a really nice area called St. Francis Woods. There was like a little village shopping area, like a couple blocks down the hill. It was really ideal. It was also like the worst time of my life, I think. My parents were going through stuff. And like, that was when I started like developing a brain. So like middle school time, you know, and then the recession hit. (laughs) Long story short, we had to figure out what to do. And we ended up moving to Palo Alto because we would be able to attend public school while still getting a really good education. And my dad still works in San Francisco. So the exchange is that he's been commuting an hour in the morning and an hour at night for the last like 10 years. When I went to Palo Alto, that was the first time I was in like a truly diverse or multicultural setting. And also it was public school. Oh. Another big thing, I had uniforms at my private school and I did not at public school. Just like a lot of different changes lined up and marked that transition to Palo Alto. Um, We also moved into a much smaller apartment than we had had. But yeah, and then we've been here for the last 10 years. I feel like the undercurrent that sort of drives, I mean, in California, everyone's relationship to place is like always money. It's always the economic factor of the housing market and what you're able to access. I mean, I guess that's everywhere. But I think a lot about like the California's the golden state and like this sort of land of opportunity. I read somewhere very loosely, but the name California comes from, I think it was like Califia or something who was supposed to be like a warrior 
queen in some book that was famous when Spaniards first came to California. Mm-hmm. And that's why they named it that. It's like this mythical island. I think that's a name California wants to live up to, but doesn't necessarily. That brand of opportunity is one that all of the biggest businesses here, our biggest industries here, gladly try to sell, like gladly try to claim. For myself, I really don't feel like I have the right to complain about something like gentrification because that's clearly not what I am a victim of. But it's weird to look at my neighbors and the people I go to high school with and like see that economic difference because I mean uh not to get too personal on the internet but there are property tax laws in California that allow families like mine who have been here for generations to pay less property tax and it's because of that that there are people who've been able to hold out on their houses in places like Palo Alto but like elsewhere in California where they bought the property some time ago and then because of in the Bay Area, especially the tech boom and all the startups and that just exponentially increase the value of their property. It keeps them from being priced out of the where they've lived, which is like a very precarious position. Like I think about that every day. Californians really, I think they buy into this idea of opportunity a lot. Like with the gold rush, there's this idea of like hard work and all that. Really not at all. Like I think about with the gold rush, the man who kind of made the most money out of it wasn't someone who was panning for gold. They found gold in the waters and the mountains of California. And there was a couple of people who knew about it. And they're like, we're not going to tell anyone that way we can buy this land and mine all the gold, you know? And he was like, yeah, it's a great idea. We're not going to tell anyone I'm in on this. He went back into San Francisco and into the city and he bought all of the panning and all of the like shovels and everything like that. He just bought them all out, cleared out all the stock for everything. And then he took some gold and like ran through the streets, literally ran, like, screaming about them finding gold in the mountains, you know. And then, of course, you know, everyone ran off to go pan for gold. And where did they got to buy buckets now? From him. And he made the most money. It's like, you know, illusion. It's all part of the show. There's There are people behind this, like, scenes who are a little bit ahead of the curve. And so it's not really an opportunity because the game is rigged. Granted, that can be said about the whole of the U.S., but... I think we've just bought in a little extra hard in California to the idea of like working hard and that your like little idea in the garage can like make it happen. Yeah. When you buy in, you have to justify something to yourself, right? You have to be like, no, 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 I did. I did work hard though. Or like I was smart enough. Like people always think like in California, there's like people like Steve Jobs who left such a huge impact. I don't know, they just see them as like these visionaries who knew the answer to everything, who like had a greater plan and that like the rest of us mere mortals just weren't able to understand what Steve Jobs is up to because he was so smart. Which first of all, I mean, I also have a loose understanding of this, but as far as I can tell, there were a bunch of other people whose work he was just sort of cohesively became the face of. Clearly was a shrewd businessman. People like Steve Jobs become sort of these images for like progress and for utopia but that's not really what they were making they were making a business that's they weren't creating technology for like to better humanity they were creating a successful business that's always what it is right you find the resources the natural resources and then you market the fuck out of them you sell them somebody comes up with an idea for some other product and then you fund it and you sell it and then eventually you have a monopoly on the market Uh and you make us pay absurd amounts of money for cords. I mean, even like 
recruiting people to work in a certain industry. Everything that we're talking about like is so tied up in everything else. And it's coming from everything else and going into everything else. Maybe that's the problem of being insulated in it, that I just don't know how to talk about it from outside. This is not insulting towards Bethlehem, but there was another uh, Joan Didion essay where she, she had a little anecdote about how she had like, grown up near San Francisco, Sacramento, or in Sacramento, and some aunt or great aunt of hers was talking about someone who was like a famous author in New York. And the aunt said, well, you know, he never made much of himself in Joan Didion was like, well, he did, you know, all these things in New York and he's very famous. And the aunt goes, well, you know, he never made much of himself in Sacramento. Which I think is kind of how Californians feel. It's like, if it didn't happen in California, like, why why would we be interested in it? It is a sense of superiority. Like, I knock people from New York City and, like, the surrounding areas all the time for never shutting up about New York City. But, like, I truly am the same about California. It's hard not to be. That's the problem of it is like it's all true and it's all fake. There's always more that you could you could grab at, but it's always less like when it comes away in your hands. Maybe that's just because you didn't you didn't grab it right. Like try again, and then you come away with less. And it already feels people come here and they pour everything out. And the interesting thing is that California is where people move after they've finished working hard. Like California, like LA is where people where New Yorkers go when they're done with New York, you know? I just as much there is like hope and like new opportunity and people are like, oh my God, I'm in California finally. How much there's also people who are like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be an active participant anymore. I think I'm just going to like raise my family and hang out here where the weather's nice until I die. Yeah. <laughs> and even those people are so privileged because they can, because they can move here and buy a house and raise their family here. I think about the architecture of California a lot in the California suburbs. Like, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I live in an Eichler house, which is a very specific style, uh, very mid-century modern. They're almost always one story, lots of floor-to-ceiling windows. They often have like an interior courtyard or things like that, uh, sort of an emphasis on the blending of the inside and the outside, because in California, the weather allows those things to be blended. So Eichler created all these like tract houses uh, and he'd do like full neighborhoods. Palo Alto used to be filled with them, but they're kind of being picked off because the people who can afford to buy a house here are also rich enough to want a really big house and Eichler's aren't huge. They're small little family homes and they're very emblematic of like the towns that have Eichler's like they, they're very distinctive, but there's something about them because Eichler really believed in this sort of community. Um, which for a middle-aged white guy in the 50s was kind of surprising. He like he helped pay uh, to support some prominent members of the NAACP. And like sort of something he did was when white families who bought his houses were upset that he also allowed people of color to buy his houses because they didn't want to live in an integrated neighborhood, he would buy back the houses because he said he didn't want those people living in his house. So I'm really fascinated by Eichler houses and how like his vision and his attempts to create like equity are embedded in these houses because the one of the reasons he became a developer is because he thought that everyone had the right to have a place to live that was beautiful and well-made and made them feel good. That wasn't just like a shitty apartment, but was still financially accessible. Stories like that, like in California, especially if you're in a period of transition, 
stories like that is, are like stories of hope and like Californians live on stories of hope. Stories about good people proving that you're doing a good job being here. You're doing good. Of course, we all want fairness. Of course, we all want, you know, progressive politicians, of course, blah, blah, blah. But I'm starting to think that, you know, those are just people, even even as a parent, yeah. maybe they don't pass that sort of goodness down to their kids. Even in the houses he built, it's just a per- it's, it was just a person. It wasn't, you know, yeah. the spirit in the wood or in the paint or whatever. Yeah. And always something I've wondered is that why it's really difficult for communes and like sort of intentional communities like that for them to survive long term, which may be a statement I'm making because I don't know a lot about them. So there I'm sure there are many that have survived long term and multi-generationally. Like there was such a huge swell of them and all these people who are gonna like live, you know, collaboratively and things like that. But I want to know why there aren't as many that have like lasted longer term. Maybe it's the generational thing. Like maybe the kids always want to leave. One thing obviously that we haven't spoken about is that there are people that have always been here. Always meaning since before the United States of America and also before when this was like Mexican territory and before meaning just like in the last century, people having to move out. It's also worth saying that like, I think this election particularly, a lot more voters turned out that were Trump voters. Not saying that the statewide percentile shifted, but more individual Trump voters showed out. It's hard. It's as hard to talk about San Francisco and Oakland as it is to talk about New York or whatever. Like even people who have lived there a long time speak to a narrative that can be so different from somebody else who's lived there forever. Cities hold so many people. Something that really gets at me is that sort of above ground industries and there's the underside industries that are supporting all of it. So the teachers usually don't teach in the city that they live in, which like in what I've studied is a huge problem. A lot of the people of color in any sort of in any office building are janitorial or administrative. Even like the inmates here in prisons in California are the ones like that are basically the wheels on the on any other industry that's more high profile. The firefighting, the manufacturing, like the agriculture, all of it is labor that we don't see, we don't celebrate. Sometimes we have no right to. When we speak about California as a whole, I feel like we always, I mean, I did this all the time, we always end up talking about the coast. Like we're talking about San Francisco or LA. Like people don't talk about the Central Valley as much or like the small towns in Northern California or things like that. Like you said, like places like Gilroy and Watsonville. Um, my uncle lives in Monterey and that is a predominantly like red area, like politically red area. But he also lives in like Salinas County. And so it's not like the white residents there who are suffering a lot of COVID's effects, but it's like migrant workers and Latin American laborers who are like living like 10 people to one house or whatever, 10 people to one room. I don't know. And they're the reason why the coronavirus stats are so high in Salinas County. It's just hard to like look at a problem and being raised in California, being told every problem can be solved. And then you're like, well, here's the problem and no one's solving it. Back to like Palo specifically, but like problems, like every problem can be solved and we've, we've solved them, but at the expense of like other communities, like there are sort of these in pockets of communities in California, which are like tied together usually by being white and rich. And 
they can really invest in this like utopia things like my alternative elementary school they can like put the money into that public school and things like that but they sort of turn their backs on other communities they can care about their own community but not another one all of our solutions are good like they're they're utopian and they're utopian and not good because they create more problems <laughs> yeah, they only work on a very small scale and even so only arguably <laughs> people will fix they like find ways to solve an issue that is affecting them directly and like great that's good we just it's over now and people here do work on like providing you know new good things too i think but the same problems that plague the rest of the non-utopian states plague california still yeah. i think to an extent this idea dichotomy of reality can be extended to hawaii yeah there's like literally no ethical way to visit hawaii anymore if you're not hawaiian because everything you're doing is exploiting the local economy in Hawaii at the expense of people who live there. And Hawaii also has a type of mystique around it that California has. I completely agree. It's been like, it's become a little legend of its own. There's something like when I was looking at the Trin Jordan reading when she talked about going to Minnesota and sort of the unexpected openness that she met there and the way people were willing to like speak with her and engage with her and sort of the community that she saw and the way people like had this like unspoken code that they help one another because of things like these like crushing winters that they go through. Whether or not the weather is truly a huge factor in our sense of community is like a different argument. But I think in Minnesota, there's like, from what I'm reading in this thing, when what June Jordan wrote, there's like a prag pragmatism to it. And like they face reality and they face the struggles of it. And it's because of that that enables them to help one another in the way that she describes. Where I think with California, it's not as pragmatic. They're not as realistic. They want to see like this dream and that makes it harder to accept the issues in our reality. In California, there's so much activism, right? There's so, so many people who are increasingly progressive, increasingly leftist. People sort of believe in their government because I guess views are closer together than if like you were living in a different state and you had leftist views, your government might be much less aligned than if you were Californian with Californian government. And so people trust the government for the most part. And especially in like suburb, rich suburban towns, people go to city council meetings, people do write letters. There's so many competing interests in California. And just because the voices of activists are louder doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to turn out okay. <laughs> yeah. The California utopian, I feel like, has been tainted by this American individualism which I think has really altered our perception of like what our dream future is and not for the better, blinded us to the realities of what needs to be done to make change that benefits the whole. That's where a little bit of the entitlement comes in too, because you're like, well, we're already doing so much good. We're already so much better than the rest of the United States. Like California always goes blue, you know? Activism in California, like I think this is sort of like a little paradox that I see. Um, a lot of people I know in California are vegan or at least vegetarian. Uh, I was very shocked to come to the East Coast and people like made a fuss that I was vegetarian. And like, this is not a criticism of like being vegan overall. I think it can be a great option. I was vegan for some time, but I've definitely met people who are like vegan who care so intensely about like animal rights and the climate. But I would see them in Baltimore eating like fresh kiwi and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of December. Or like very intensely caring about like, you know, not wanting to eat eggs, but like, 
not caring about migrant workers' rights who pick the apples that they're eating. That's a really good point. We have to talk about the fact that a big reason behind California's cast as Utopia is that it was a frontier. And the United States has, for the most part, always run on this idea of a frontier. Like, literally, after we you know, across the continent of the United States in the 60s when, like, buildings were going up and, like, mo- the movie industry was beginning and everything. Then we made the frontier of the moon. Like, we, like, we're, we're literally that ridiculous. <laughs> if we're not, like, actively destroying something beautiful, then who are we? <laughs> yeah, and I'm wondering, like, well, I know that the idea of the frontier really correlated to the idea that regardless of your politics, this is America. Regardless of your politics, we're one country. We're the number one country in the world and obviously that attitude is fraying i'm wondering is it because we don't have a frontier or or do you think the u.s will always have a frontier it'll make one i think that depends on what part of the u.s you're in and we totally forgot to film an outro for this episode which accompanies the second week of the january 2021 calendar place location and identity Please follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, wherever else you might get your podcasts. Follow our Instagram at Trash or our personal Instagrams at R-R-R-Y-E-N and at Catherine.Shirk. We love you, we respect you, and we're rooting for you.